Lesson 1 for September 29 through to October 5, Creation and the Fall. And to introduce our series of lessons this quarter, we have the author, Dr. Denny Fortin from Andrews University, and the next voice you hear will be his. Greetings. I'm Denny Fortin, Professor of Historical Theology at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary of Andrews University in Bering Springs, Michigan. I am the principal contributor to the Bible study guides, Oneness in Christ, that we will study this fall of 2018. You've noticed my accent and you're wondering where I'm from. I'm a French-Canadian from Quebec City in Canada, and I have been a professor at the Seminary of Andrews University for 24 years, since 1994. While I've been here at the seminary, I have held a number of responsibilities, among them a dean of the seminary for about seven years, uh, between 2006 and 2013. I'm a professor of historical theology, as I've mentioned, so my principal areas of uh, discipline and of teaching is the development of uh, teachings, of doctrines, uh, the development of ideas and theological thoughts through the centuries. I hope you will be interested and enjoy and be spiritually refreshed as you study these Bible study lessons for this quarter. And may God bless you richly as you ponder the meaning of all these insights into what it means for us to be united in Christ. The Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for the Fall of 2018, Oneness in Christ. The Introduction, Our Unity in Christ. The Church is God's family on earth serving, studying, and worshipping together. Looking to Jesus as its leader and redeemer, the Church is called to take the good news of salvation to all people. Number 12 of the Fundamental Beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church states, in part, quote, The Church is the community of believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in continuity with the people of God in Old Testament times. We are called out from the world. We join together for worship, for fellowship, for instruction in the Word, for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, for service to humanity, and for the worldwide proclamation of the Gospel. End of quote. But what do we mean by church? Who belongs to the church? The answer to these questions depends in part on our definition of the church. A church is certainly the local community of believers in Jesus who obey the Lord and who assemble themselves for worship and service. They can meet in house churches or in larger congregations, as we see in Romans chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. By church, we also mean the building in which Christians assemble, but that is hardly the best definition of the church. The church is about people, not about buildings. In the New Testament, the church sometimes is referred to as the group of believers in a particular geographical area. So when Paul addressed the church in Galatia, he referred to many local congregations in towns and villages in that region, as we see in Galatians 1 verse 2. But we also see something similar in Peter's epistle, 1 Peter, in chapter 1 verse 1. By church, we sometimes also mean a group of people who belong to a particular denomination or who call themselves by a particular name given for their beliefs and heritage. Yet all these definitions are incomplete. The church is the people of God all over the earth. And though Christ has faithful followers in various denominations, 
many of whom will be in the final crises joining God's remnant people, this quarter we are going to focus on our church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and what unity in Christ means to us. Fundamental belief number 14 is called unity in the body of Christ. It states, quote, The church is the one body with many members, called from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. In Christ we are a new creation. Distinctions of race, culture, learning, and nationality, and differences between high and low, rich and poor, male and female, must not be divisive among us. We are all equal in Christ, who by one Spirit has bonded us into one fellowship with Him and with one another. We are to serve and be served without partiality or reservation. Through the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, we share the same faith and hope and reach out in one witness to all. This unity has its source in the oneness of the triune God who has adopted us as his children. End of quote. The purpose of this series of Bible study lessons is to provide biblical instruction on the topic of Christian unity for us as Seventh-day Adventists, who now, as always, face challenges to that unity and will unite until the end of time. However, in the Scriptures, we find numerous insights and instructions on how to live God's gift of oneness in Christ. Those insights, those instructions about living out and expressing in our church the unity we have been given, are the focus of this quarter. May God bless you as you study these Bible study lessons. Sabbath afternoon, September 29. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again this week. Our topic is oneness in Christ. And this week, we're looking at creation and the fall. And as we've looked back in the past towards creation and the fall, we've seen your hand guiding. We've seen your grace. We've seen your power. As we open your word this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit may relay to us from you the meanings and the text we shall study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Genesis chapter 15 and verses 5 and 6. Then God brought Abraham outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Let's read that again, Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Then God brought Abraham outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. The story of God's people starts with the creation of humans and their tragic fall into sin. 
Any attempt at understanding the nature of unity in the church must begin with God's original plan at the creation, and then the need for restoration after the fall. The first chapters of the Bible reveal that God intended for humanity to remain one family. Unfortunately, this unity was severed after the tragedy of sin. In sin alone, the roots of disunity and division arose, more of disobedience as foul consequences. We get a hint of this division in the immediate interaction between Adam and Eve when God first approached them after they ate of the forbidden tree. And we'll read that in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 11. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Hence, among all else that the plan of salvation will accomplish, the restoration of the original unity is one crucial goal as well. Abraham, the father of God's people, became a key player in God's plan of salvation. Abraham is depicted in Scripture as the great example of righteousness by faith the kind of faith that unites God's people with each other and with the Lord himself. Romans 4, verses 1 to 5 reads, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God works through people to restore unity and to make his will known to lost humankind. Sunday, September 30. Love as a Foundation of Unity A clear message flowing out of the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2 is the overall harmony that existed at the end of the week of creation. God's final words, that all was very good in chapter 1 verse 31, refer not only to aesthetic beauty, but also to the absence of any element of evil or discord when God finished making this world, and the humans who were to populate it. God's original purpose in creation included the harmonious coexistence and interdependent relationship of all life forms. It was a beautiful world created for the human family. All was perfect and worthy of its creator. God's ideal and original purpose for the world was one of harmony, unity and love. Question. Read Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27. What do these verses teach about human uniqueness in contrast to the rest of the earthly creation as depicted in Genesis 1 and 2? Genesis 1 Verses 26 and 27. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Genesis says that God created humankind in his image. Something not said about anything else in the Genesis account. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Although theologians have debated for centuries the exact nature of this image and the nature of God himself, many passages of Scripture present God's nature as love. Question. Read 1 John chapter 4, verses 7, 8 and 16. How can these verses help us to understand how we were originally created and how this could have impacted the original unity found at the creation? 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And the same chapter, verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. God is love, and because humans also can love, and in ways that the rest of the earthly creation certainly can't, to be created in his image must include the ability to love. Yet, love can exist only in relationship with others. Thus, whatever else being made in the image of God entails, it must entail the capacity to love, and to love deeply. Monday, October 1. The Consequences of the Fall The consequences of the fall were enormous. The disobedience of Adam and Eve started the rupture of a harmonious interdependence between all forms of life. Even worse, it started the disunity, discord and divisions among human beings that exist even today. The disharmony is seen immediately in how Adam and Eve sought to put the blame for the fall on others, as we read in Genesis three twelve and 13. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Things have become only worse since. Question. Read Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, and chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. What in these verses reveal the results of sin and its impact on the harmonious world God had created? Genesis 3, verses 16 to 19. To the woman he said, 
I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through to 15. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Adam's disobedience became the source of many events and consequences that over time affected all of God's creation. The natural world itself began to suffer from the consequences of sin. Human relationships also were affected. Cain and Abel, two brothers, who should have loved and cared for each other, were estranged because one wished to follow his own selfish inclinations instead of following God's prescribed mode of worship. This estrangement resulted in violence and death. Cain's reaction, however, was more directed at God than at Abel. He felt angry toward God. We read about that in verse 5 of chapter 4. And this anger led to resentment toward Abel. Disobedience further ruptured human relationships. Genesis 6.5 reads, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
This evil ultimately led to the flood and to the incredible devastation of God's original creation, left in the flood's wake. But even then, God did not give up on the human race, but left a remnant, Noah and his family, to start again. After the flood, God gave a promise to Noah and to his family. The rainbow in the sky always would remind them of his care and promises, of his kindness and mercy, as we read in Genesis chapter 9, verses 10 and to 17. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of covenant between me and the earth. It shall be, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And Isaiah 54 verses 7 to 10, For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. God instituted a covenant with Noah and reinstated his original plan to have a united human family faithful to him and his word. And so to finish today, what are the ways that sin brings disharmony? What choices can you make right now to help restore harmony among those whom your choices can impact in a powerful way? Tuesday, October 2. Further Disunity and Separation. Question. Read Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through to 9. What happened here that makes the problem of separation and unity worse? Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But 
The Lord came down to see the city, and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. The next events chronicled by the Bible after the flood are the construction of the Tower of Babel, the confusion of languages, and then the dispersion of people, who so far had spoken one language. Perhaps attraction by the beauty of the land between the rivers Euphrates and Tigris and the fertility of the soil, some of the descendants of Noah decided to build themselves a city and a high-towered structure in the land of Shinar, today's southern Iraq. Archaeology has shown that Mesopotamia was a densely populated region from earliest historical times. Among these people were the Sumerians, who were credited with inventing the art of writing on clay tablets. They built well-constructed houses and were masters in the production of jewellery, tools and household utensils. Excavations also have uncovered many tower-like temples, dedicated to the worship of various deities. The descendants of Noah, who settled in the land of Shinar, soon forgot the god of Noah and the promises he had made to never again destroy the world by a flood. Building the Tower of Babel was a monument to their superior wisdom and skills. Their desire for renown and reputation, to make a name for ourselves, as they said in Genesis 11.4, was one motive for this building project. The Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 1, pages 284 to 285, reads, According to the divine purpose, men were to have preserved unity through the bond of true religion. When idolatry and polytheism broke this inner spiritual bond, they lost not only unity of religion, but also the spirit of brotherhood. A project such as the Tower... To preserve, by outward means, the inward unity which had been lost could never succeed. End of quote. The fall of Adam and Eve shattered the unity of the human race and God's original plan. It resulted in confusion regarding worship, the widespread dissemination of evil and immortality over the earth, and ultimately the separation of humanity into many different cultures, languages and races that often have been at odds with one another since. So, to finish today, what are practical steps we can take to help heal the divisions of race, culture and language that hurt us even in the church. Wednesday, October 3. Abraham, Father of God's People. 
The three great monotheistic world religions, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, look to Abraham as their father. For Christians, this association is a spiritual relationship. When called to leave his country in Mesopotamia, Abraham was told that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12 verse 3. But we also read about it in Genesis 18 verse 18. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And in Genesis 22 verse 18, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The blessings came through Jesus. Question. Read Hebrews 11, verses 8 through to 19, Romans 4, verses 1 to 3, and Galatians 3.29. What elements of Abraham's faith do these texts mention? And how do they relate to the idea of Christian unity? That is, what can be found in these texts that can help us today to understand what a crucial component of Christian unity should be? Hebrews chapter 11 beginning at verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God." By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country." Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And Galatians 3.29 And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. As father of all believers, Abraham gives us some of the basic elements central to Christian unity. 
First, he practised obedience. Hebrews 11.8 reads, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Second, he had hope in the promises of God. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10 read, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Third, he believed that God would give him a son, and that one day his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. On the basis of this response, God justified him by faith, as we read in Romans 4. Fourth, he trusted in God's plan of salvation. The greatest test to Abraham's faith came when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, which we read about in Genesis 22, verses 1 through to 19, and Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19. In Genesis 22, Beginning at verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham, and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the Mount of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to the Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be remembered." Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, 
because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. And Hebrews 11, verses 17 through to 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, and concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. The Old Testament describes Abraham as a friend of God, and there are two places we can read about right now. Second Chronicles 20, verse 7. Are you not our God, who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. His life of faith his unwavering obedience and his confidence in God's promises make him an example of what our Christian lives should be now. So to finish today, think about your actions and words over the next few days. In what ways can you seek to make sure that whatever you say or do reflects the reality of your faith? Thursday, October 4, God's Chosen People In calling Abraham to be his servant, God chose for himself a people to represent him to the world. This calling and election was an act of God's love and grace. God's call to Israel was central to his plan for the restoration of all humanity after the devastation and disunity caused by the fall. Sacred history is the study of God's work toward this restoration, and a major component of that plan was the covenant nation of Israel. Question. According to Deuteronomy 7, 6-11, why did God call Israel his people? Why did he choose the descendants of Abraham as his people? Deuteronomy 7 beginning at verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, and he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him, he will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to 
observe them. God's love for humankind is at the centre of the election of Israel as his people. God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants in order to preserve the knowledge of God through his people and to bring about the redemption of humanity. Psalm 67 verse 2 reads, That your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Yet, It is a supreme act of love that made God choose Israel. The descendants of Abraham had nothing to boast about to claim God's unmerited love. Deuteronomy 7, 7 read, The Lord did not set set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. It is a strange reversal of values that God uses to select his people. While humans look at the power, wisdom and self-confidence to select leaders, God does not choose the strong and mighty to serve him, but those who sense or acknowledge their weakness, folly and nothingness, that no one might glory before him. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 26 to 31 reads, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Yet look at the privilege that was theirs. Ellen White writes in Christ Object Lessons, page 288, God desired to make of his people Israel a praise and a glory. Every spiritual advantage was given them. God withheld from them nothing favourable to the formation of character that would make them representatives of himself. Their obedience to the law of God would make them marvellous of prosperity before the nations of the world. He who could give them wisdom and skill in all cunning work would continue to be their teacher and would ennoble and elevate them through obedience to his laws. If obedient, they would be preserved from the diseases that afflicted other nations, and would be blessed with vigour of intellect. The glory of God, His majesty and power, were to be revealed in all their prosperity. They were to be a kingdom of priests and princes. God furnished them with every facility for becoming the greatest nation on the earth. And so to finish today... What parallels can we find between what God did for ancient Israel and the calling he had for them, and what he has done for us, and the calling he has for us as Seventh-day Adventists? Bring your answers to class on Sabbath. Friday, October 5.
God's original purpose in the creation of humanity also is reflected in the institutions of the family and the Sabbath. We read about that in Genesis 2, 21-24. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The Sabbath was intended for all humanity, as Jesus clearly indicated in Mark 2, 27 and 28. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, Its universal nature is seen in the Genesis account itself, when God set aside the seventh day, not only before the calling out of Israel as his covenant people, but even before the introduction of sin. What a powerfully unifying force the Sabbath could have been if all people had kept it. It was the day of rest God intended to remind the descendants of Adam and Eve of their common bond to him and to one another. In the book Giles Guidance, page 535, we read, The Sabbath and the family were alike instituted in Eden, and in God's purpose they are indissolubly linked together. On this day, more than on any other, it is possible for us to live the life of Eden. It was God's plan for the members of the family to be associated in work and study, in worship and creation. The father is priest of his household, and both father and mother as teachers and companions of their children. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. How does the Genesis account of the creation of the woman from the side of Adam reveal the close and intimate bond that should exist between a husband and wife? What does that tell us about why, all through the Bible, God uses the imagery of a husband and wife as an example of the kind of closeness he seeks with his people? 2. Although the story of the Tower of Babel tells us that human ethnic and linguistic diversity were not part of God's original plan for humanity, how can we transcend such natural divisions today? How can the church still experience unity and harmony, even if it is made up of people of many nations and languages? 3. What are some of the parallels you found between the calling of ancient Israel and our calling as Seventh-day Adventists? More important, what lessons can we learn from them that should help us to be faithful to our divine calling in Christ? To summarise this week's lesson... God's original plan at creation intended for humanity to live harmoniously and in unity as one family. The disobedience of our first parents caused an interruption in God's plan. Yet God called Abraham to establish a people through whom he can keep alive the promise of restoration that is found only in Christ. Inside Story
Our mission story this week is titled No More Sabbath Classes and it's by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. Seventh-day Adventists who wish to become nurses no longer face a Sabbath conflict with the opening of the church's first nursing school in Bangladesh. The three-storey facility that houses the Bangladesh Adventist Nursing Institute was funded in part by a 13th Sabbath offering and stands on the campus of the Bangladesh Adventist Seminary and College in Gowalbathan, Kalakor, a town located a two-hour drive from the country's capital, Dhaka. This place will send hundreds of missionaries all over this vast and mighty country, and it will be a blessing from heaven, Adventist Church President Ted N. C. Wilson said at a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the nursing school in late 2016. May God bless this nursing college. The school, which has rooms for 100 students, opened for classes in 2017. The new building, with ten classrooms, four laboratories and a conference room, and other facilities, received $150,000 of its 400000 price tag from a 13th Sabbath offering given by church members worldwide in the third quarter of 2015, said Myron Ju Lee, president of the Bangladesh Adventist Seminary and College. Another $100,000 came from the Adventist Church's Southern Asia-Pacific Division, whose territory of 14 countries includes Bangladesh, and the rest came from individual donors in South Korea. Saul Samuel, President of the Southern Asia-Pacific Division, described the establishment of the nursing school as a remarkable accomplishment that would not have been possible without the 13th Sabbath offering. This is a milestone, Samuel said. This is the first Adventist Health Training Institute in Bangladesh. The school also offers local Adventist students the opportunity to study nursing in their own country. It is really important for our school here in Bangladesh to be able to have a school of nursing because there is no place where an Adventist young person can go to school to take nursing without having to go to school on Sabbath, said Kevin Costello, Associate Executive Secretary at the division. Now we will finally have a facility that will be open and available for them so they can get a nursing degree and honour God on the Sabbath as well. Thank you for your mission offerings that helped make it possible to open the Bangladesh Adventist Nursing School. You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.